It's not just House Republicans who can't get their act together. Senate Republicans seem a hot mess as well. The lead starts right now. Republicans in both the House and the Senate in what can fairly be called disarray after failing to keep their party in line on the very issues they demanded action on, such as securing the border and impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas or projecting American strength around the world and much, much more. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin's here, and we'll talk to him about the drama playing out across the aisle, plus one day away from Donald Trump's first real case before the U.S. Supreme Court. He's trying to keep his name on election ballots in states across the country as his actions on January 6th come into question. Ahead, this critical moment for his legal team and for Chief Justice John Roberts, who's tried to keep the court out of po uh, politics. And four months to the day since the Hamas terrorist attacks on Israel on October 7th, I'm going to ask the father of a hostage about the new ceasefire proposal that could result in the freeing of his daughter. It's a proposal that Israel's prime minister says contains crazy demands from Hamas. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. There was a showdown on the U.S. Senate floor today as Republicans failed yet again to agree on a border bill that included much of what Republicans themselves have been demanding. This is really one of the most remarkable turns in recent political history. Just to bring you up to speed, last fall, Senate Republicans demanded that any aid to Ukraine and Israel not be passed unless Congress also addressed the U.S.'s border crisis. And then, months and months later, after a lot of work, that compromise happened. And Sunday night, those senators got what the Wall Street Journal editorial board, which is rather conservative, is calling, quote, the most restrictive migrant legislation in decades, which the journal means as a compliment. It is legislation that the conservative Biden-mocking Border Patrol Union supports. And on Tuesday, Republican leader McConnell seemed excited that something would finally be accomplished to address this catastrophe. This is a humanitarian and security crisis of historic pr proportions. And Senate Republicans have insisted, not just for months, but for years, that this urgent crisis demanded action. Three months ago, we asked our colleague, Senator Langford, to lead that action. And Langford did. McConnell noted that the crisis at the border ha has never been worse. The gaping hole in our nation's sovereign borders on President Biden's watch is not going to heal itself. No, it isn't. It needs to be fixed by legislators, by lawmakers. And McConnell thought that Republican senators and House Republicans would read this text, this law, and take yes for an answer. He apparently did not realize that Republicans are actually less willing to cross Donald Trump than maybe ever before. I think the border is a very important issue for Donald Trump. Uh, and the fact that he would communicate to uh, Republican senators and Congress people that he doesn't want us to solve the border problem because he wants to blame uh, Biden for it is, uh, is really appalling. That was January 27th. Now, McConnell thought that Republicans would be able to overcome this political pressure from Donald Trump. And then came Wednesday when he met with his fellow Republicans. We had a very robust discussion about whether or not this product could ever become law. 
and it's been made pretty clear to us uh, by the speaker that it will not become law. Note that what McConnell was saying there yesterday, that's not an argument against the legislation. It's just addressing a political reality. So now the United States is going to continue to have the status quo at the border so that Trump can run against that status quo and blame Joe Biden for it. It is a political stalemate. You know who loves this stalemate besides Donald Trump, I mean? Only people who are loving the stalemate that we have in this nation today are the cartels. That's uh, North Carolina Republican Senator Tom Tillis on January 11th. He's been demanding for months that Democrats work on a compromise with Republicans on the border. Fortunately now, we have a majority of Americans that expect this administration to come to the table and negotiate in good faith with conservatives. This is not a political loser for people who are concerned with voting on a bipartisan compromise. Except that I guess it is a political loser because Tillis is now a no vote on this legislation he had been demanding. He says that Biden cannot be trusted to implement the law, the bill, the law, that he was demanding Biden come to the table to negotiate in good faith with conservatives like him about. Now, that larger package, foreign aid to, for Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan, plus border restrictions, that came up for a vote this afternoon, and it failed by a vote of 49 to 50. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin's here. I'm going to talk with him about all of this in a moment, but let's start with an update on what's going on on the Hill with CNN's Manu Raju and, and a look at, at the stunning Republican dysfunction in both the House and the Senate. It's been the story of the 118th Congress, intense GOP divisions, and the failure to effectively govern. And now a new speaker struggling to get his agenda through. I had many people reach out to me via text message and say, what the hell are you guys doing up there? We may have the gavel, but we're not acting like we're in the majority. It's been a frustrating couple of days. And the longest serving Senate leader in history, failing to convince his own conference to back a national security package after nearly five months of painstaking negotiations over border policy. All playing out as Congress has no path forward to respond to the crisis along the border or to provide much needed aid to U.S. allies Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. With the slimmest of majorities, the House GOP has struggled to simply keep the lights on for the government, with GOP warfare leading to the first ever ouster of a sitting speaker. The office of Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives is hereby declared vacant. Eventually giving the task of running the unruly chamber to Mike Johnson, who has faced pitfall after pitfall. I think there's a lot of squishy, you know, Republicans that don't really represent our base or our voters. The anger coming after Johnson miscalculated in the GOP push to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The resolution is not adopted. Falling one vote short after Democrat Al Green unexpectedly showed up despite recovering from surgery. He needs to count votes before it comes to the floor. As bad as Pelosi was, she knew her votes before it took place. I was embarrassed for our conference, for our party, 
because we can do better than we did last night. Speaking to reporters today, Johnson downplayed the failure and also attacked House Democrats for rejecting $17.6 billion in aid to Israel. I don't think that this is a reflection on the leader, it's a reflection on the body itself. But Johnson also has angered many Republicans for siding with former President Donald Trump and vowing to kill the Senate's bipartisan border security deal. I think there's been a real lack of leadership on this. I just wish they'd we're playing 40 chess and had a plan. Because Johnson vowed to kill the Senate border plan, many Senate Republicans said there was no point in debating it and blocked the measure today, as some on the hard right call for McConnell's ouster. I think a Republican leader should actually lead this conference and should advance the priorities of Republicans. McConnell said he was simply listening to the GOP demands to act on the border first. I followed the instructions of my conference who were insisting that we tackle this in October. Now, on the Senate floor right now, there is an effort to try to move ahead with a major aid package for Israel, for Ukraine, and for Taiwan that does not include border security provisions. And it's unclear at the moment whether there will be enough Republicans to get on this bill. And as far as the bill that just failed, the national security package that included the border policy, just four Republicans ultimately voted for it. Mitch McConnell voted against moving ahead with it. And one Republican who voted for it, Lisa Murkowski, told me, quote, today, I am pissed off. Jake. All right, Monty Raja on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. With us now, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it's possible he's pissed off too. Uh, Senator, uh, you are a moderate Democrat or a conservative Democrat. Uh, you've been very central to so many legislative compromises between the Democrats and Republicans since 2010, but especially since uh, Biden took office. Is this dysfunction worse that we're seeing this week? than what you've seen in the past? And who do you ultimately blame for the failure of the border bill to become law? Well, let me just say this. First of all, Jake, I'm an American. I think that's how most of us should be feeling right now. What do we do to bring our country together? Next of all, what we saw on the floor today of the United States Senate, which I can't even imagine. You've been covering it so many different ways and angles, and I think you've been spot on. This reaffirms why I did not run for re-election, because I have come to the conclusion we're not going to fix the political posturing in Washington, here in Congress, from Washington. It'll be fixed from outside of Washington. This is absolutely unheard of, what you saw happen, and a reversal of absolutely proportion that we've never seen before. 18,000 Border Patrol agents have all said this would be the best bill they've ever seen in at least the last two decades or more. It'll control the border. It stops catch and release. It's changing the, uh, the interpretation and definition of asylum. It holds people. It doesn't put anybody back in our country. It puts 1,800 new agents out and 1,500 new ICE agents out in the country to make sure that we adjudicate as quickly as possible people that have been let go to make sure whether they deserve to be here or not. All these things as everybody's talked about forever. Now, they're blaming the Biden administration. They have a right to. Um, the Biden administration from day one, I've disagreed with on their border. But when you have a chance to, ch to change and everyone come to an agreement with President Biden and everyone else agreeing that this bill will give us the tools to secure our border and politics raises its ugly head, absolutely it's from the bowels of, of wherever to say, no, I'm sorry. That's not going to be good for my politics. Well, I'm sorry to all of my friends and colleagues. This is for America. This is good for our country. 
Start yeah. putting your country before yourself. Quit worrying about being a Democrat or Republican getting reelected. If you have to do this to get reelected, then you shouldn't want to serve. So just to be clear, though, what Mitt Romney said, and I, I haven't seen any compelling argument to the contrary, is that the reason that this was going to fail, he said a few days ago, was because Donald Trump wants the issue to run on against Biden and would rather have that. And, and many seem... Many Republicans seem to acquiesce to that. Is that your understanding of why this all happened? Well, that's the appearance of what happened because basically it was moving down a pathway of, pa of passing. Uh, when you put James Langford, who's the most, one of the most sincere conservatives you're ever going to meet, with the values and morals of any human being would be happy to have and aspire to, and do what he did for the sake of our country, and put this out there and negotiated hard and got a bill that basically shut the border, secured our borders. And our Democrat friends who worked with him, the president who supported it, knowing that he's to blame for where we are today, but we're going to fix it. Mm. And now saying you're not going to fix it. Trust me, it's worse to do what we did today and not fixing something that we knew needed to be fixed than someone making a mistake and letting it get to where it got to. So That's the problem, Jake. Senate Republican Leader McConnell's facing an open revolt from some uh, of the conservative hardline senators because he was willing to work with Democrats on the border crisis. Senator Ted Cruz yesterday called on McConnell to step down. Uh, McConnell told Politico, quote, the reason we've been talking about the border is because they wanted to, the persistent critics. You can't pass a bill without dealing with a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate, unquote. How would you rate McConnell's leadership on this issue? Well, first of all, Jake, I have more respect for, for Mitch McConnell today doing what he thinks is right and doing what is truly right for our country because he and I have had our differences philosophically and ideology wise. I understand that, but he understands this process. He understands the Senate. He's defending the filibuster, which I defend with every breath I have in me. He's now basically looking at we have to work together because the filibuster allows us and mandates that we do that. And that's what keeps this country different and than any other place in the world and the Senate is a special place. He gets that. I have more respect for him stepping up, trying to push his, his uh, caucus, if you will, mm -hmm. in that direction. I cannot believe that they have done what they did. I've always said this, if I can go home and explain it, Jake, I'm fine with it. No president's gonna tell me what to do. No leader of any party's gonna tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. And I've been that person, I always will be. For someone to threaten that you're going to defeat me if I don't vote the way you want me to, then go ahead and defeat me. I wouldn't want to be here anyway. So you alluded to earlier in this conversation how Washington's not going to be fixed from the inside. It needs to be fixed from the outside, right. and that's why you're not running for re-election to the Senate. But CNN is reporting that you have privately told people, in terms of whether or not you're going to run for president, that a Joe Biden health scare or a Donald Trump conviction could give you an opening to run for president as an independent. Obviously, we do not know when or if either of those events will yeah. happen. You're only 32 days away from the independent candidate filing deadline in two states, North Carolina and Utah. What is your deadline for making a decision? Well, Jake, I said, look at Super Tuesday. I think Super Tuesday will define what we have and what we're dealing with. I, there's so many good people, and I would like to see the grand old party be grand again. I would like to see the Democratic Party be that responsible, sensible, voice of the people again and we've got everyone going to the extremes and they continue to get driven further apart i'm going to do everything in my power 
any way I possibly can as my daughter and all of us are working together, Americans together, bringing people back together. Let them know that your voice is going to count. Change how the, the character of the people you send here, the people that will put their country before themselves or their party. They should not be a slave to the party. You know, and I, I, I keep remembering the 1796 I've read where George Washington says, beware the political parties. They will usurp the power from the people. That's exactly what's happening. The parties have become greater than the means. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, always good to have you on, sir. I'm sorry that it's uh, under uh, such disappointing conditions. Jake, it's more than disappointing. It's dangerous, extremely dangerous what we're doing today. This has to be reversed and the people should demand it. Those who said they were going to vote, it was the greatest bill that they'd ever seen. It's finally we're fixing it and then backed away in 24 hours because someone or led them to believe that it'll be harmful to their political career. Ask them why, who sent them, who they work for. Senator Joe Manchin, good to see you, sir. Coming up Thank next, you. the case Donald Trump is bringing before the U.S. Supreme Court, the case that has ties to January 6th, why it's so historic, what its potential impact could be on the 2024 race, plus why one specific justice has unusual experience with the Capitol riots. And we're back with some breaking news for you. The United States military is confirming a strike today in Iraq killed a commander with the group Kataib Hezbollah, the person responsible, it is believed, for the deadly attacks on U.S. forces in Jordan, according to U.S. Central Command. Let's get right to CNN's Natasha Bertrand at the Pentagon. Natasha, what happened? Yeah, Jakes, we are told, according to multiple local officials here in the U.S., as well as Iraqi security sources, that this was a drone attack that killed uh, a Kataib Hezbollah commander, targeted a vehicle he was traveling in in Baghdad earlier uh, this evening. And according to Central Command, this was a Kataib Hezbollah commander that was directly responsible for, quote, planning and participating in attacks on U.S. forces in the region. We don't yet know that person's identity. Uh, the U.S. is likely going to try to get better confirmation of whether or not they killed uh, the intended target of this strike. But I am told uh, by another U.S. official that this is part of the planned response that President Biden had signed off on in response to uh, the drone attack in Jordan that killed three U.S. service members. The U.S. has said repeatedly that it's going to conduct a multi-phase, multi-faceted operation that is going to be uh, targeted at these militias that were responsible for these drone attacks and another rocket attacks on U.S. and coalition forces in the region, and I am told that this is part of that response. So Iraqi security forces now say that they are investigating uh, what exactly happened here. However, we are told, and according to U.S. Central Command, that this was uh, a drone strike on a vehicle that that, that killed this senior Kataib Hezbollah figure, Jake. All right, Natasha Bertrand, thank you so much for that breaking news. In our law and justice lead, the U.S. Supreme Court is just hours away from hearing arguments on a historical case, whether or not states can ban Donald Trump from their ballots over what happened on January 6th, based on the insurrection clause in the U.S. Constitution. As seen as Paula Reed reports for us now, the former president is not expected to be in court tomorrow as the nine justices, three of whom he appointed, hear this important case. What started as a long shot bid to bump Donald Trump off the 2024 ballot with a fringe legal theory has ended up at the highest court in the land. Thursday, the Supreme Court will hear arguments about whether to disqualify Trump from holding office because of his role in the January 6th Capitol attack after a landmark decision from Colorado's top court, which concluded the 14th Amendment's insurrectionist ban applies to Trump. Trump engaged in insurrection and therefore cannot appear on the ballot.
frankly, President Trump didn't engage. He didn't carry a pitchfork to the Capitol grounds. He didn't lead a charge. In the years-long lead-up to the case, the challengers looked for states where they believed they could succeed based on a constitutional provision that hasn't been tested since 1919. Their efforts have been met with mixed results, with only Maine and Colorado taking him off the primary ballot. Even California opted to include Trump. Trump's team insists that states should not be able to deprive voters of their choice of candidates. This whole thing is rigged election interference. But now, after turning several recent hearings and other cases into campaign stops. I want to be at every trial day. I want to watch this witch hunt myself. Trump is not expected to attend the Supreme Court arguments. That change-up is part of a more disciplined approach the team is taking to this historic case. Arguing on Trump's behalf will be Jonathan Mitchell, a former Texas Solicitor General. This will be his sixth appearance before the high court. Supreme Court justices are ultimately political appointments. And this case is not just a test for Trump. The justices have also been under intense scrutiny over questions about ethics and partisanship. And for Chief Justice John Roberts, his legacy is on the line as someone who tries to steer the court clear of the politics that divides Washington. We do not sit on opposite sides of an aisle. We do not caucus in separate rooms. We do not serve one party or one interest. We serve one nation. Roberts under pressure to build consensus. This case puts the court in a tough position any, any way around. I think they'd rather not be um, thinking about these issues, but it's not, it, it is what the democracy requires and what the Constitution requires at this moment. We think the, the court is going to rise to that occasion. Well, tomorrow is all about ballot eligibility. The Trump team and the justices know the former president only has until Monday to let the justices know if he wants to come back to the high court on a totally separate case, that immunity issue that he lost at the D.C. Circuit yesterday. Jake, it's just another example of how the Supreme Court is going to be one of the biggest influences on the 2024 election. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. And you can listen to those arguments live, arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court. Tomorrow morning, right here on CNN, I'm going to anchor special coverage with CNN's Caitlin Collins at the Supreme Court. All of that starting at 9 a.m. Eastern tomorrow. Moments ago, the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken weighed in on negotiations on a proposed hostage deal, saying there are some clear non-starters on the offer from Hamas, or the counteroffer rather. But he says there is some space for an agreement. We're going to have more from the region exactly four months to the day since Hamas attacked Israel. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Topping our world lead today, four months ago today, the terrorist group Hamas launched its appalling and barbaric attack on Israel, killing 1,200 people and taking more than 250 people hostage. And now, as the Israel Defense Forces continue to pound Gaza in its increasingly unrealistic goal of wiping out the terrorist group entirely, a terrorist group that embeds within the civilian population of Gaza, an estimated tens of thousands of Gazans have been killed, while hundreds of thousands are teetering on the brink of famine. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is attempting to broker an end to the suffering and return the remaining Israeli hostages. CNN's Jeremy Diamond reports now on the intricate negotiations as Israel's longtime leader, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, calls Hamas's multi-phase counter-proposal delusional. The ball is back in Israel's court and it's being swatted right back. We haven't committed to anything. We haven't committed to any of the delusional demands of Hamas. There is supposed to be a process of negotiation between the mediators, and from what I see from Hamas's reaction, they are not there. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu dismissing Hamas's counterproposal for a ceasefire that would see dozens of hostages released from captivity. Instead, he is vowing total victory. Surrendering to Hamas's delusional demands would not lead to freeing hostages. It would just invite another massacre. The latest Hamas position outlines three phases, each lasting 45 days, beginning with the release of women, children, sick and elderly hostages in exchange for the release of Palestinian prisoners, an intensification of humanitarian aid and the withdrawal of Israeli forces from Gaza's population centers in line with a prior Israeli framework. But Hamas's proposal also calls for the release of all Palestinian prisoners detained since October 7th, a non-starter for Israel. Phase two would see the release of all male hostages and soldiers, as well as the withdrawal of all Israeli forces from Gaza. Dead bodies from both sides would be returned in phase three. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken reviewing the proposal with Israeli officials. While there are some clear non-starters in Hamas's response, uh, we do think it creates space for agreement to be reached. And we will work at that relentlessly until we get there. As negotiations drag on, no respite for those trapped in Gaza. Overnight, ambulance crews in central Gaza rushing to the scene of another Israeli airstrike, searching through the rubble, rushing survivors to the hospital. But in Gaza, even the hospitals are no guarantee of safety. Hello, good morning, my friends. Speaking from inside Nasser Hospital, Dr. Ahmad Magrabi describes the scene at the hospital's main gate. This is the gate of the hospital, and how the people are standing, you know. Snipers on rooftops, people trapped in fear. Nobody can move outside of the hospital, see? The people, how they are standing, they can't, they can't go. If anybody would go outside of this gate, he would be killed, see? On the street outside the hospital, a lifeless body explains that fear. Locals say she was shot by a sniper. From Khan Yunus to Gaza City, the sounds of gunfire sparking panic. Hundreds of people waiting for humanitarian aid trucks now suddenly running for their lives. As confusion turns to fear, some rush one way, others run the other. 
but nowhere seems safe. And now, Jake, the question is whether and when the Israeli military will push ahead into Rafah, that city that has more than 1.2 million people currently displaced and living there. I'm told that Secretary of State Tony Blinken raised concerns with Israeli leaders, including the Israeli prime minister, about a potential Israeli military operation there. He was also briefed, I'm told, by Herzia Levy, the top Israeli general, about their potential plans to move into that city in the coming weeks. Jake. All right, Jeremy Diamond in Tel Aviv for us. Thank you so much. A father who has been waiting four long months for Hamas to free his 23-year-old daughter is here in D.C. speaking to leaders on Capitol Hill and is going to join me with his reaction to this proposed deal and what he's going through next. We're back with new video just into CNN of the breaking news from Iraq that we told you about earlier. A U.S. strike earlier today killed a commander with the group Kataib Hezbollah. CENTCOM says this is the person responsible for organizing the attacks on U.S. forces in the region, resulting in the deaths of three U.S. soldiers in Jordan and the wounding of dozens others. Before all the drama on the House floor yesterday, House Speaker Mike Johnson had an important meeting. He invited his Israeli counterpart, the Speaker of the Parliament in Israel, the Knesset, to Washington, D.C., and that Speaker uh, himself brought along three families, three families whose loved ones were kidnapped by Hamas or affiliate terrorist groups on October 7th. Four months ago today, Hamas attacked Israel four months ago today. Eitan Gonin was at yesterday's meeting. His daughter, Romy, was at the Nova Festival when Hamas attacked that festival. The terrorists killed more than 260 people at the site alone. Romy, thankfully, managed to run. She made it to a friend's car, but the terrorists of Hamas hunted them out, killed those in the front seat. Romy was in the back seat. She was surrounded by terrorists. Romy managed to, to call her family before she was kidnapped and taken to Gaza, it is thought. Her mother described the call to me on the lead back in October. We heard the shooting around them and then a, a lot of people talking in Arabic, shouting in Arabic. Somebody tried to start the, the, the engine but couldn't do it and then somebody hanged the phone and that's it. That's the last, last thing I heard from my daughter. And Romy's father, Eitan Gonin, is here with me now in studio. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank I'm you. sorry it's under these conditions. Before that phone call, before she hung up, uh, Romy mentioned she was shot in the hand. Yeah. Have you heard anything about her at all from that day? Did any, have any other hostages who have been freed or returned seen her? Yeah. For the first 16 days, Romy was missing. And only after 16 days and nights, the army came and updated, updated us that Romy is actually kidnapped. And then additional 30 days until the first uh, people that came from the same tunnel with Romy told us that they saw her alive, but severely wounded in the hand. The hand is not functioning at all. Basically, the, the fingers are changing colors because the, 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 the blood is not running smoothly in the arm, but she is taking care about herself with her left arm with bandages that were expired eight years ago. Mm -hmm. But we are feeling a lot from the functioning of her hand and basically we don't know the condition of her hand and we don't know the condition of Romy. It's been 74 days since the last update and we don't know anything yet since then. 
Your family has been admi admi admiringly persistent trying to get the world to hear the story yeah. and pay attention yeah. Yeah. to the hostages. Just days after the attack, a meeting with leaders in Switzerland, coming here to the U.S. for protests in New York. You met with lawmakers last month and again today in D.C. Uh, do you get the sense that th these leaders are listening to your story Ex and, and yes. want to do what they can to help yes. free Romy and the other hostages? Yes, exactly. Yes. The, the first impression and the last impression is that all of them, all the people that in, in the administration that we met, are committed to Romy's release and all the rest of the uh, kidnappers, for sure. We had good meetings with, uh, with Mike Johnson, with uh, uh, Alejandro Mayorkas, and with Roger Carstens, and all of them are 100% committed to Romy's release and all the rest. There's a proposed deal on the table right now, as I'm sure you're following, um, to release more hostages. A source tells CNN that uh, Netanyahu says there's no way Israel is going to accept the counteroffer uh, from Hamas, which calls on Israel to withdraw uh, completely from Gaza over the course of four months. What, what's your thought on, on this? I met uh, my prime minister exactly one week ago in his office and we had a two and a half hours meeting and he listened to us, all the people, all the representatives from the families and I think that he, he knows exactly what to do but as he said, he said I cannot stand in your shoes but you cannot stand in my shoes. Basically it means for me that nobody, nobody can realize what we are going through for 124 days. And we need, well, I'm not an admiral, admiral I'm not an army-oriented uh, person. I am a father, father of a kidnapped girl, Romy. And all I want is that my daughter will be released today. And I want to hug her. I want to cry with her, and I want the best physicians and the best doctors in the world to take care of her. What do you want people watching right now? What do you want them to know about Romy? Romy, Romy is my sunshine, is our sunshine. Romy brings light and heat and high energy to every place she enters. She is basically a free spirit. Uh, she is a professional dancer, and this is why she attended the festival with her best friend Gaia. And we miss her a lot. We love her so much and we, we are sending her high energy in order to, for her to withstand the brutally and, and, the, and the condition, the bad conditions she is suffering for 124 days. Basically, Romy is my, I, I don't know any bravest person in the world than Romy. Romy is our hero. And Time is of an essence. Time is up, basically. And, yeah. and we need Romy with us immediately. Well, we're all going to be praying uh, for Romy and for you and your family. Thank, Thank you. you so much for joining Thank us you. today. Really Thank you. really appreciate it. Thank you. We'll be right back. And we're back with our world lead in a massive Russian missile strike on Ukraine. Ukraine's Minister of Internal Affairs says six parts of Ukraine were hit, including the capital, Kyiv where Russian cruise missiles and strategic bombers killed at least four people and injured 38. While further south, a potential shift on the front lines as Russian troops attempt to circle the key town 
of Avdivka, just north of Russian-controlled Donetsk. CNN's Fred Plykin is in Kyiv for us. And Fred, you recently reported on how rapidly Russia is burning through troops and equipment in Avdika in, in these so-called meat assaults. Bigger picture, what does the possible mm. loss of that town signal in Ukraine's larger fight? Well, I think it, it certainly is a, a difficult one for the Ukrainians where they've been trying to defend that town, but it's becoming harder by the day, especially in light of the fact that the Ukrainians are running critically low uh, on ammunition. And, and the one thing that's really difficult for them uh, to defend against is these so-called meat assaults that we saw firsthand near the front lines there uh, in Avdiv. And essentially what the Russians do is they send small units of assault troops uh, that continuously assault Ukrainian positions, and they hope to at some point break through. Now, what we're hearing from Avdivka is that apparently in the south of the city and uh, and to the north of the city as well, there are some places where the Russians have now gained a foothold, but they did lose a lot of people in the process of being able to do that. I was in one command center with the Ukrainians where you could literally see uh, the ground in those areas littered with the bodies of dead Russians. And there were some uh, who were still out there who had uh, apparently been separated from their units. So it certainly has been costly for the Russians. I'd say at this point, they by no means have that town. The Ukrainians say the situation there is critical, but they don't believe <clears throat> that they've lost that town just yet. They believe, Jake, that the Russians badly want that town because they want to give Vladimir Putin a win ahead of the Russian presidential elections on March 17th, Jake. And Fred, the Kremlin uh, has granted Tucker Carlson a rare interview with Russian leader Vladimir Putin. Putin has refused interview <coughs> requests from lots of other Western journalists, uh, including CNN. Uh, this interview also comes as two other journalists with American citizenship are, are currently detained in right. Russia. The Wall Street Journal's Evan Gershkovich and Radio Free Europe, Radio Free Liberties, Alsu Kermasheva. Uh, uh, tell us why you think the Kremlin might have granted this access to Tucker Carlson and, and what this might signal about what Putin is trying to accomplish. Yeah, well, first of all, I was in uh, in our Moscow bureau for about three years, and I can't even tell you the amount of times that we asked for an interview with uh, Vladimir Putin. And also over the last uh, two year, almost two years that this war has been going on, the amount of times that we've asked for an interview uh, with uh, Vladimir Putin. So certainly it's not for a lack of asking uh, that we uh, haven't uh, gotten one, or CNN hasn't gotten an interview with him yet. And also there was actually a demonstration that took place in Moscow just about two days ago of wives who wanted their husbands back from the front lines where a bunch of Western journalists were detained as well. The Kremlin has been pretty clear on why they're giving that interview, why they gave that interview to Tucker Carlson. Uh, they said that they believe that he is sympathetic to what the Kremlin has to say. They said today this was the spokesman for Vladimir Putin, that traditional Anglo-Saxon media, as they put it, they believe that they are not impartial to what the Kremlin is saying. They believe that Tucker Carlson is more uh, to their liking, as they put it. They said he has a distinctly different view, and he, they also said that they believe it makes no sense to communicate with what they call traditional Western media because they believe that it is not beneficial for them, as they put it, Jake. Uh, Fred Plaikin and Kiev, thanks so much. The breaking news this hour, a brand new U.S. strike in Iraq, killing a commander responsible for attacks on American forces in the region. We're going to have much more of what we're hearing from the Pentagon about this strike next. From executive producers Park Chanuk and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. 
Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start this hour with the breaking news. A U.S. military strike in Iraq has killed a top commander for the group Kataib Hezbollah. The man killed is believed to have been behind attacks on American forces in the region. A U.S. official says the strike is part of the response authorized by President Biden last week in direct response to an attack on U.S. troops in Jordan. And a drone attack that killed three American service members and wounded dozens of others. CNN's Alex Marquardt's here. Alex, tell us what you're learning about these strikes. Well, uh, Jake, that, that drone strike against those U.S. forces was a week and a half ago. And since then, the Biden administration has made clear that they will retaliate for that and do it sort of over several phases. So what we're seeing now, we believe, is the second stage of that response. The first was against seven facilities uh, that are linked to Iran in Iraq and Syria on Friday night. And here what we have is a drone strike against a senior militia commander, very notable because it's in Baghdad, in the capital of Iraq, which is a close U.S. ally. Uh, this was a drone strike that took place around 9.30 local time, again, in, in an area of eastern Baghdad called Al Mashtal. The commander has not been identified, though Central Command, which carried out this strike, did say that he was a senior commander of Kataib Hezbollah, which is one of the most prominent militia groups in Iraq. It is one of the most uh, powerful Iran-backed groups uh, in the region. So we are waiting to, to, to get more details uh, about who exactly was struck. But it is clear, and the administration is now saying this, is that this is part of what we believe to be an ongoing response in retaliation for those three American service member deaths. So Katai Hezbollah is one of the groups believed to be responsible for that attack in Jordan that killed three U.S. soldiers. Do we know if this will affect uh, the group's capabilities? When that strike happened that killed the three American service members, the, the, the administration did mention Kataib Hezbollah. Um, they said that there was a broader umbrella group called the Islamic Resistance in Iraq that was responsible. Um, Kataib Hezbollah is, is not to be confused with Lebanese Hezbollah. Um, but I think what the administration is trying to do here, they're not necessarily taking away yet their major capabilities, but they are sending a clear message in targeting a senior commander. The, the administration will try to degrade their capabilities as well, we would believe, uh, as part of their ongoing efforts. But clearly, the, effort, the, the intention here is to try to deter. And actually, in the wake of those three American service member deaths, Kataib Hezbollah put out a notable statement in which they said they were standing down their operations, would no longer carry out attacks against U.S. forces. Now, remember, there have been some 160, 170 attacks against U.S. and coalition forces uh, since October 7th, since the war uh, in, in Gaza began. Major question now is whether what we're seeing in terms of reaction or, or, or these strikes from the U.S. will actually serve to deter, because we have seen a handful of strikes uh, since that retaliation on Friday night. Right. More than 100 uh, strikes against U.S. forces from many different groups, not just Qatar. Exactly. Hezbollah. Alex Marquardt, thanks so much. Now to our politics lead and the ongoing GOP dysfunction in the halls of Congress. Today, Senate Republicans blocked the bipartisan border security deal that they had originally insisted be packaged with aid for Ukraine, Taiwan, and Israel. This, it's the same deal that Republicans were demanding until a few days ago. But... As it turned out, Donald Trump did not want it because he wants to use the border issue against Joe Biden in the fall. And this, I suppose, dashed the bipartisan dreams that Biden spoke of longingly when campaigning for office. 
The thing that will fundamentally change things is with Donald Trump out of the White House, not a joke. You will see an epiphany occur among many of my Republican friends. Hmm. Not sure that epiphany ever happened, Melanie Zanona, who joins us from Capitol Hill. Um, doesn't see, I don't see any epiphanies, just a, a lot of people uh, fighting about the border and compromised legislation that is now going down in flames. Yeah, that is certainly the feeling here on Capitol Hill, where we are seeing politics winning out over policy. Just four Senate Republicans ended up voting on that Senate bipartisan border security deal that some of their own members helped craft. But there were probably more Republicans who actually would have supported it. But once they knew that it was dead on rival in the House, they didn't want to put a target on their back, especially with Donald Trump coming out so publicly against this deal. Trump, of course, wants to preserve this as a campaign issue for November. And that has really sparked some frustration on both sides of the aisle. Just listen. The damage Republicans have done this week to their credibility cannot be understated. There are other folks that read the Facebook posts and the Twitter posts and saw different facts that they thought might be true, but I personally told them over and over again, they're false, and it's been hard to overcome. For some reason, we still believe everything we read on the internet. If you want to continue to use the southern border as a backdrop for your political campaign, that's fine. Good luck to you. Don't come to Arizona. Take your political theater to Texas. Partisanship won. The Senate has failed Arizona. Shameful. And Jake, one of the voices you heard there was James Lankford. He was one of the lead Republican negotiators on that bipartisan deal. He is now facing backlash from Republicans for helping to lead this effort. And meanwhile, Mitch McConnell, the Senate GOP leader, facing own, his own questions about his political future. So the tensions right now really high inside the GOP, all while Democrats are saying they're now going to try to campaign on this issue and hammer Republicans for not doing anything to solve the border crisis in I mean, November. Lankford's facing Republican backlash for negotiating with Democrats and independent Senator Cinema, the most conservative border compromise that I have seen in 25 years of covering this issue. It's unbelievable. So anyway, Melanie, the Senate, um, there is this standalone bill uh, being offered now, which is originally what Democrats wanted to offer in the fall, standalone aid for Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan. Um, what's going on with that? So the Senate right now is taking a procedural vote, but the key test vote is not going to be coming up until later. Right now, senators are engaged in an urgent round of discussions to try to come up with an agreement on a path forward. But it is still really unclear whether they are going to have the 60 votes they need in order to advance this in the Senate. And it's also facing questions about what would happen here in the Republican controlled House if a package like that were to come over. Speaker Mike Johnson so far noncommittal about what he would do if that were to come over. but. Jake, it's just been a remarkable turn of events. After four months of negotiating that border security deal, the Senate now exactly where it started four months ago, which is trying to pass a standalone Israel-Ukraine package. Yeah, as Alfred once said, uh, some men just want to watch the earth burn. Melanie Zanona on Capitol Hill, thanks so much. With us now, Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. He was one of the three uh, lead negotiators on the border compromise. He was the Democrat. We interviewed James Lankford on Monday. He was the Republican, and we interviewed... Uh, Kirsten Cinema, The Independent, uh, yesterday. Uh, Senator Murphy, um, thanks so much for joining us. The Senate seems to be heading into a debate and amendment vote uh, situation on the standalone bill for spending for Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan. Do you think that will ultimately pass? Who knows? 
I mean, this Republican Party is spiraling out of control as we speak. This is terrible for the country. It's terrible for the world. I mean, they told us back in the fall that they could not vote for Ukraine funding by its own, that they needed a bipartisan border fix. As you mentioned, the three of us who are very different legislators, very different priorities. We got a bipartisan compromise, a pretty conservative bipartisan compromise. They told us this week that they were kidding. In fact, they did not want to tie border and Ukraine together. And now we are back to where we were last fall, offering them a vote, a clean vote on funding for Israel and Ukraine by itself. Right now, as we speak, it does not yet have more than a handful of Republican votes and is about to fail. Uh, time will tell. Um, this is a Republican Party that has just become rudderless. And I guess to the extent they're tied to anything and anyone, it's Donald Trump who wants chaos, right? He wants chaos at the border. He wants chaos overseas because he thinks that will help him politically this November. And right now, Republicans are listening to anything he tells them, which is pretty awful. I was proud of my colleague, Senator Langford. He stuck with this compromise, even though all of his Republican colleagues abandoned him. He went to the floor today to explain why it was still the right thing to do for the country. And maybe once this Trump fever breaks, uh, his style of leadership will come back into vogue. What makes you think the Trump fever is ever going to break? I mean, I, I mean, I've been I've been hearing people talk about the Trump fever breaking for, for years now. I, I mean, at, at what point is it not a fever? It's just that the Republican the body of the Republican body politic is just infected. Well, I mean, but listen, the flip side of this is that we did actually see the Senate work for a short period of time when they weren't sure whether Trump was still in charge. Right after Joe Biden got elected, we had a pretty unprecedented run of bipartisan achievement. The infrastructure bill, the gun bill, the CHIPS Act, um, the gay marriage bill. I, I mean, I know everybody wants to believe that this place is perpetually and fundamentally broken, but we actually passed a lot of good stuff for a two-year period of time, and then Trump once again reasserted himself in the party. So I am not of the school that we can never, ever find a path forward with some of our Republican friends. But on this issue of immigration, for the time being, they have very clearly decided they want chaos at the border. They do not want to fix the problem because they think that that helps Trump politically. Senator Lankford, I have to say, did a very good job uh, advocating for conservative policy. Uh, I, I, I've been covering this now for more than 25 years. Uh, and what you agreed to was more conservative than the legislation that Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham put forward with the Gang of Eight back in 2013. Uh, and it seemed bizarre to me that Republicans wouldn't take yes for an answer. I want to run something else Senator Langford said uh, during his speech this morning defending the compromise. This is the pen that I was handed at that desk when I was sworn in to the United States Senate. And I signed a book that was at that desk with this pen because I was becoming a United States Senator. Because the people at home sent me here to get stuff done and to solve problems. There's no reason for me to have this pen if we're just gonna do press conferences. That's the angriest I've seen, Senator Lankford. Uh, uh, you probably have seen, her, seen him angrier behind closed doors. Could the border compromise be resurrected or is it just dead? Well, I actually haven't seen him angrier behind closed doors. That is as angry as he gets. I was actually sitting, standing in my office uh, with a number of my staff people watching him give that speech. We were all absolutely 
awestruck by you know how strong he has been at this moment when all of his colleagues are abandoning him. Uh, the short answer to your question is, Jake, is that I think for the time being, um, Republicans are never going to compromise on immigration. I think the only way that immigration ever gets solved as a problem is if Democrats are in charge of the House and the Senate. We change the rules and we get something passed with a majority vote. I think Republicans can't imagine a world in which the problem of immigration is solved. Like, what would they do on their weekends if not drag the press down to the border to show off how broken it was? What would they do if they couldn't complain about this as an issue? I don't think they can live with a world in which immigration is solved. And so for the foreseeable future, I unfortunately don't see any world in which we resuscitate this compromise that so many Republicans said they wanted, but then ran away from as soon as it was put on the floor for them. I mean, and just a reminder for everybody at home, the Republicans controlled the White House from the election of Donald Trump uh, 2016 through 2019 uh, and did not pass immigration reform with control of the House, Senate and the White House. And, and uh, I'm really awestruck. Uh, and I, I don't mean that as a compliment. Senator Chris Murphy, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Former Defense Secretary Mark Esper, who served in the Trump administration, is going to be here in a sec. We're going to ask him about the new U.S. strike uh, that the Pentagon says was targeting the commander responsible for attacks on American forces. New video shows the aftermath of the strike. We're back in a moment. Back with our worldly now four months after Hamas's brutal attack on Israel, 1.3 million Palestinians in Gaza have been forced to the southern city of Rafah as the IDF has been pummeling Gaza. And now Israel has its sights set on that overcrowded city for the next phase of its plans to try to eliminate Hamas. The top IDF commander there says there is currently no plan in place to reduce civilian deaths, but would work on such a plan if and when he receives orders to enter Rafah. And while the fighting in Gaza seems to be intensifying, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is trying to broker a ceasefire and hostage deal that Israel just dismissed after the latest proposals from Hamas. Let's bring in former Secretary of Defense under Donald Trump, Mark Esper. It's his very first interview on the lead in his new role as a CNN global affairs analyst. Uh, he also serves on the board or as a strategic advisor for a handful of aerospace and defense-related companies. Secretary Esper, uh, welcome to CNN officially. Good to have you here. Thanks, Jake. Good to be with you. So has the longstanding U.S.-Israel relationship fundamentally and irreversibly changed over the last four months, do you think? I do not think so. I think the historical, cultural, and, and other ties are just too deep and longstanding for it to be fundamentally changed. You know, clearly, there's a change in relationship, though, between um, Washington and Tel Aviv, uh, most notably with Bibi Netanyahu and his far-right government. I think that's the change. And, of course, that's going to continue to evolve as this uh, conflict drags on. His government is not just far-right. I mean, he, uh, if the two far-right religious zealots, bigots, Smotrich and Ben Gavir, if they were to take a hike, they would take with them, theoretically, 14 seats, and Netanyahu's government would fall. So he he can't alienate them in any way, and they have really extreme views on Palestinians, racist views, on the West Bank, on Gaza. Is there any peace possible in the region with this Israeli government, with these people in it? Yeah, look, you're right, Jake. Uh, you have those members and others who want to reoccupy Gaza, who want to push the Gazans, uh, the Palestinians in Gaza, into Egypt and other places and basically put... Jewish settlers back in. So it's it's not something that's feasible. I think the, the broader spectrum of uh, Israeli politics does not want a reoccupation of Gaza. 
but they do want a better defensive situation. And of course, you have to deal with uh, what's the end state, which we still don't know. We have some plans, some ideas, but you have this two-state solution that remains out there, probably the best possible one, assuming you have a reformed or re a renewed Palestinian authority. But look, I think the, the politics internal to uh, Israel uh, within his cabinet are what's driving Bibi Netanyahu right now to take these hard stances with regard to, for example, the latest uh, proposal that came back from Hamas and, and what the likelihood of a deal is. I want to also turn to the breaking news from Iraq. The U.S. drone strike in Baghdad. Central Command says a Kataib Hezbollah commander responsible for attacking U.S. troops in the region was killed. Looking at the video, the strike appears very precise. Um, explain the, the planning and intelligence gathering that goes into a strike such as this. Yeah, well, of, of course, we go through great efforts uh, at DOD and the, internet, the uh, intelligence community to, to track the leaders of these various groups. And there's many of them that are out there, these uh, Iranian-sponsored Shia militia groups. And you want to track their whereabouts. You want to know who they're meeting with. You want to try to intercept communications to understand what they're doing. So, look, it's tracked very carefully. I think this is a, 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 a good thing that they did, a good targeting. It's good to kill the uh, leaders of these groups. But look, the best you're going to do is disrupt and degrade their capabilities. If you really want to deter, and I've said this before, you, you have to go after things that Iran values. And for Iran, these proxy groups are expendable. They've been at this for 40 some years, funding them, arming them, training them. Uh, but, uh, you, you know, the talk last week about a strong response uh, to Iran based on after the deaths of the three American soldiers is, uh, is just kind of left me a little uh, disappointed in terms of what we've seen so far and, and what I believe will or will not deter the Iranians going forward. We've already had two or three uh, militia group attacks since last Friday's uh, 85 target assault by U.S. forces. All right, former Secretary of Defense Mark Esper, a brand new CNN commentator. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time, sir. And we have some breaking news coming in. This intense house fire just outside Philadelphia. Gunshots apparently were fired from this house. We're piecing together exactly what in the world is going on. We're going to show it to you in a second. We're back in a moment with what we're learning. We have breaking news just into CNN. Police say this incredible and horrific scene of a house fire uh, outside Philadelphia is apparently connected to two police officers who have been injured when we're responding to a call of a child that had been shot. This is in Lansdowne, Pennsylvania, just outside Philly. Let's go straight to CNN's Bryn Gingras. Bryn, what are we learning? Yeah, Jake, like you just told your viewers before the break, this is very much a fluid situation. Sources telling uh, our John Miller and Danny Freeman that exactly what you just said, there was a call into 911 from an 11-year-old girl saying that she was shot. Police officers responded to that location that you're seeing right there, and when they got to the house, they were met with gunfire. Two officers were actually shot. We know that their condition is stable, not life-threatening injuries, but they did go to the hospital. We also know an 11-year-old girl was trained transported to the hospital from that house location. Uh, unclear what her condition is right now, but you can see what is happening right there at that house where police officers, firefighters have now responded. It is engulfed in flames. So a lot of questions here, like was there anyone in the house other than that 11-year-old girl uh, who started this fire? These are all questions that are, of course, being asked right now by law enforcement there on the ground. Uh, we are still working our sources as well to get more information, but that is what we know right now. An 11-year-old girl transported from the hospital after being shot or saying she was shot and also two officers injured at the hospital as well. Jake. All right, Bryn Gingras with a breaking news situation. We'll come back to you when you have more to report. Thank you so much. Turning to our politics lead now.
Early voting is currently underway in New York's special House election to replace the vacancy left by George Santos. You might remember George Santos, the disgraced representative expelled from Congress. Uh, Republicans who maintain a very, very fragile majority in the House hope that a woman named Mozzie Pillip can keep the seat, while Democrats are hoping former Congressman Tom Suozzi can pick it up for them, seen as Miguel Marquez has been talking to voters in the Empire State's third congressional district on Long Island and parts of Queens. The opening salvo in the 2024 election cycle is on. Early voting in the special election to replace George Santos. Voters of all stripes say more than anything, they want moderation and political leaders who will work together. Was there one motivation that got you to come down here to cast your vote? Early? I want a sane person in the government. I'm done. I don't like the direction the country is going currently, and um, I think it's an important election, and we, we have to go towards the middle more. The issues motivating many voters in this suburban New York, largely Jewish district, Israel, abortion, crime, and taxes, but seemingly none bigger than... Immigration? How big a concern of immig for immigration? Number one. Number one concern for you. Is it about stopping them coming in or handling the chaos on the border? Well, I mean, it's both. You have, you have a chaotic situation at the border. You're spending a ton of money to try to manage the situation. Um, we don't have jobs for the people when they come in. They're being dispersed. We lose complete control over where they are once they're in the country. What would you like to see happen with immigration? I don't have the answer, but I know what's happening now isn't good. But we have to figure it out. Everyone has to get together and figure it out and talk. The district is mostly in Nassau County on New York's Long Island and a small sliver in Queens. Total active voters just over 530,000. In early voting, more than 31,000 have already cast their ballots. Nassau County, where most voters live, breaks it down by party, giving us a glimpse into who so far is coming out. Through four days of voting in Nassau, 43% are registered Democrats, 35% registered Republicans, and 19% unaffiliated with any party. <laughs> Democrat Tom Suozzi has run all out in a short but well-funded campaign raising $4.5 million compared to his Republican challenger, <laughs> Mozzie Pillow, who's raised only $1.3 million. Tom Swazi will work with both parties. To date, Swazi and his allies have nearly doubled Philip and her backers in spending on advertising in the pricey New York market, $13 million to $6.7 million. With a potential rematch looming this November between Joe Biden and Donald Trump and Congress narrowly divided, voters here in this suburban battleground district see the outcome next Tuesday as sending an early message to both parties. I would like to see this country united. I do not want to see somebody who is elected that separates and creates a partition in the country. It's not good for us. I think that Trump did a heck of a good job. Would I vote for him again? That's another question. So as a tried and true Republican who wants to see Republicans here, you're not sure if you'll vote for Donald Trump in November. I would rather see him not run. But if he runs, I, I will have to vote for him.
So on top of all this, turnout in this race is expected to be very small, about 25%, say most political watchers. And even though Democrats are right up right now in the early voting, the Nassau County Republican Party is known to have a formidable get-out-the-vote machine. Early voting runs through Sunday. Next Tuesday, the 13th, is Election Day. Everyone expected to be a squeaker, but whatever the result, it will reverberate throughout the country. Jake? All right, Miguel Marquez in uh, New York. Thank you so much. Let's bring in the uh, political panel. Um, thanks, guys, for being here. Uh, first of all, let me just ask about the, the spending disparity mm -hmm. with Democrats outspending Republicans for the seat, I think something like three to one. Are you surprised by that? Uh, the margin is what's really surprising there. Uh, you have two very different kind of candidates. Swazi, obviously, an incumbent um, or previous incumbent, has big, bigger networks for fundraising. Uh, the Republican candidate, not well known, also sort of running sort of a shadow or basement kind of campaign. You don't see her out that much. That you got footage is sort of surprising. That may speak to part of this fundraising disparity. The other fascinating thing about this is Republicans could not have picked a more diverse candidate, shall we say, black, woman, refugee, I served in the IDF, veteran, yeah, right? Like an Ethiopian who who moved to Israel and served <laughs> in the IDF. So the idea, and and it, and it really is. It's 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 such a fascinating example of where we are. That it's like okay, well, let's find somebody that checks all of these boxes that could potentially go up against a Democrat. The early voting is going to make a big difference in states where we do have early voting. We tend to see more seniors who vote Democratic turnout. Other folks who are like you know working day jobs. Um, so this this actually might also account for some of what is Democratic enthusiasm about. The seat. You know, it's funny, you just talked about the diversity of the Republican candidate. In 2022, Elise Stefanik uh, was very, very proud, Congresswoman mm -hmm. Elise Stefanik, part of a House Republican leadership, of how diverse uh, the, the Republican candidates yeah. for the House were. Uh, they were minority, they were female, they were veterans. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, with all the attacks on DEI and <laughs> diversity efforts, nobody's out there uh, praising uh, this uh, um, um, Mazi uh, Pillip except for you, Nayara, and, and uh, I mean, it just kind of gets at the, at the lameness of the attacks on efforts at diversity, given that that has been a Republican effort. Look, it was a big part of why Republicans had success in, in House races. It was a real priority, not just for Elise Stefanik, but um, Parker Poling is a huge uh, staffer. She was chief of staff for Patrick McHenry, went to the Congressional Committee. That was priority number one for her, and it's why Republicans uh, had such an uptick in uh, women freshmen in the last Congress. Very interesting. We're seeing now some of these divisions in the House Republican majority, this narrow majority they have, uh, and how it's impacting their ability to govern. Take a listen to what Congressman Matt Gates of Florida said on Newsmax after Republicans failed to pass their Mayorkas impeachment vote. As I'm watching that board and it's 215 to 215, I have never missed George Santos more. I also wondered, like, wouldn't it have been nice to still have Kevin McCarthy in the House of Representatives? Never thought you'd hear me say that. But Kevin McCarthy, after being dislodged as speaker, took his marbles and went home. Matt Gates longing for Kevin McCarthy just so there would be a Republican uh, and help uh, it, it, there to help them uh, impeach Mayorkas. I'm sure that comment really endeared him to the rest of the caucus and what they've suffered for the last couple of weeks. But it is that idea of taking your marbles and going home. It's just, it's a game at this point. Uh, the the continued effort to avoid anything that looks like bipartisan compromise, such as working on this. Uh, 
the bill. Like, I mean, the GOP Senate's going to filibuster a bill that they had technically asked for and helped to negotiate because anything bipartisan would actually hurt the political chances at the top of the ticket. And that's the reality of what is, is Congress right now. It's not about governing or passing legislation. Okay, just as a former House Republican yeah. staffer, can you believe this? I mean, just I've been covering this issue since the, the George Bush administration. Yeah. This was the most conservative compromise I've ever seen. Uh, Democrats basically got nothing, mm -hmm. and Republicans still turned it down. Jake, you were covering this issue when I worked for Eric Cantor, and yes. we were not able to get anything done on immigration, and we were talking about doing different things. What do we as Republicans do with dreamers? This bill had none of that. This yeah. was an absolute legislative win, very skillfully done by James Lankford, but you have to have your members who want it, and very clearly they didn't want to take the win. Yeah, and, and Democrats were kind of like over a barrel because they wanted the Ukraine mm -hmm. funding, mm -hmm. and they were willing to make compromises on the border, which Democrats are now acknowledging is a crisis, in order to get the Ukraine funding, and Republicans got almost everything they wanted. The idea was to take border off the table as an issue for Biden politically, right? He's got a rising economy, all these good things to talk about, but the narrative is about the border. And so what would have been seen as caving on principle and issues is now suddenly, all right, well, we gave you stuff what you wanted, you are the problem. Puts the problem squarely back in the bucket of the Republican Party. By the way, what, it would have been caving. I mean, it would have been giving... It, it, it was a cave. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Republicans didn't take yes for an answer. No. Um, it's just insane. Maybe it but, but, interesting times. But it keeps, it keeps yes. the border as an issue that's still going to be on the campaign trail. Right, so. of course. Oh, yeah, we all get it. It's just like... Very cynical. But there's an idea. To, there's something to solve the problem. And, and by the way, Republicans are telling the truth when they say this is a life or death issue. First of all, there are migrants yeah. who risk their lives to cross the border, and it's tragic. There are coyotes who rape and kill mm -hmm. along the way. Sometimes there are people who are bad people who cross the border and commit crimes mm -hmm. against Americans, often against Latinos. So this is not just you know, silly business, this is life or death for people. I had a very interesting conversation with the sheriff of Eagle Pass, Texas over the weekend, and he said, it's not about crime. Crime is low, it's not about crime, it's about national security. Mm -hmm. And I found that fascinating, like what does that actually mean to people? So here's another interesting story from this place we're in with the Republican Party. <laughs> the RNC chair, Ronna McDaniel, is now offering to step down following a vote by the RNC after the South Carolina primary. If they want her to be removed. CNN reports that North Carolina Republican Party Chairman Michael Watley is one of the names being floated by Team Trump as a possible replacement. What is his, uh, you know, what is his CV? Well, according to the New York Times, the reason he's on the short list is because, quote, Mr. Trump likes Mr. Watley for one overwhelming reason, according to people who have discussed with him with the former president, he is a stop the steal guy, as one of the people described him. He endorses Mr. Trump's false claims about mass voter fraud. So that, that is, I mean, Rana has been pretty helpful to Donald Trump on that too, yeah. but apparently not enough. No, and I've known Michael Watley since 2004. I worked for Senator Burr when he was chief of staff to Senator uh, Elizabeth Bowles. Yeah, you're a Tar Heel. Uh, I am, unfortunately not a great result against Clemson last night, but we, beat, we did beat Duke. Um, I think there's, look, Michael Watley's done a good job running the North Carolina Republican Party. It had some challenges. Uh, I've seen good chairs and bad chairs. But his, his allegiance to Trump isn't just in a stop the steal. He helped censure Richard Burr. He helped censure Tom Tillis, two of the Republican senators, out of a loyalty or seen perceived disloyalty by those two senators um, to Donald Trump. And it speaks to one of the things that if he comes in, the members like him. That's important. But we're going to have to see, can he raise money? Because big donors 
who are somewhat still skeptical of Trump and his rhetoric, they don't like the stop the steal rhetoric. How does he solve that problem? And what, and what do you think? What do you make of all this? Uh, it, it is very clear what the political play is. It, it's a Donald Trump political play where you had Secretary Pompeo under oath in front of Congress last week, still refusing to recognize that President Biden was elected in a free and fair election. He said, yep, he's president, but it's not free and fair. And that, that will continue to be a theme under Trump. Thanks to both of you. Coming up, the source of those fake robocalls. You might remember there were calls pretending to be Joe Biden telling Democrats in New Hampshire to not vote. It turns out those calls were from two companies in Texas. So CNN went there. What Ardoni O'Sullivan uncovered as he tracks how AI is seeping deeper into U.S. politics and political dirty tricks. Stay with us. In our tech lead, a criminal investigation is underway into the AI deepfake Biden robocall telling Democratic voters in New Hampshire to not vote in the uh, state's primary election last month. Here's a portion of what that fake call, again, this is a fake call, sounded like. Voting this Tuesday only enables the Republicans in their quest to elect Donald Trump again. Your vote makes a difference in November, not this Tuesday. New Hampshire's attorney general says the fake call is linked to two Texas-based companies, Life Corporation and Lingo Telecom. CNN's Doni O'Sullivan went to Texas to try to learn more about them. Uh, Doni, what'd you uncover? Hey, Jake. Yeah, that's right. The New Hampshire attorney general giving an update yesterday uh, on this investigation into a robocall that had an AI generated version of President Biden's voice telling Democrats not to vote in the New Hampshire primary. The AG saying that that call might have gone up to up to 20,000 uh, people uh, in New Hampshire. Now, I say it was an update yesterday because certainly the investigation seems to be very much ongoing. Uh, but officials in New Hampshire pointing to two companies here in Texas for potentially uh, having some involvement in how that call uh, got how that call got made to so many people in New Hampshire naming two companies uh, lingo and the other life corporation uh, we've come to Texas to try and get some answers from these companies ironically these companies that are involved in uh, making millions even billions uh, of robocalls to uh, Americans for years now uh, are not picking up the phone to us we went to life corporations uh, headquarters um, or an address that's associated with their business today in Arlington, Texas. It's actually in a strip mall um, in, in, under name, another entity called Text to Survey. Uh, no answers uh, there, no answers from either uh, of these companies, but both the FCC and attorneys generals across the United States uh, coming down pretty hard on this. Now, look, these companies seem to have uh, some involvement, certainly according to the New Hampshire Attorney General, in this robocall. But ultimately, what still remains a mystery is who created the fake and who and who paid for the fake. And uh, 11, 11 Labs is a um, service online freely, uh, widely available for a small fee. You can make it sound like anybody uh, has said anything using AI. Expert analysis has found that that Biden fake was made using 11 Labs technology. 11 Labs telling us in a statement uh, that they take this sort of thing very seriously, that they won't comment uh, on specific cases. Uh, but our understanding is that it was indeed made using that technology. So somebody uh, here knows who made for this, who paid for this. But unfortunately, at the moment, Jake, we're not getting uh, answers uh, from the folks here in Texas. But we, as well, uh, investigators, both federal and state, uh, keep looking into this.
seems to me like the companies can either be part of the problem or part of the solution. Uh, that doesn't sound like they're trying to be part of the solution there. There's also this altered video of President Biden that Meta, which owns Facebook, says can stay online even though they know it's been manipulated. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, um, there's a video uh, on Meta, on Facebook specifically, uh, that essentially purports to show Biden behaving inappropriately toward a young woman, specifically actually his, his granddaughter. The video has been edited in such a way to make it look like he's behaving inappropriately. It's false, uh, totally taken out of context and uh, didn't happen. Um, but and Meta's Facebook's rules on this, uh, according to Facebook's own oversight board, which is this kind of body of experts that Facebook has set up to try and deal with some of its more difficult content moderation decisions, uh, described Meta's policies uh, on AI, on deepfakes, on all this sort of stuff as incoherent and describing uh, loopholes in those policies that are a danger to elections around the world this year. Now, over the past 24 hours or so, we have seen Meta come out and said they are going to start labeling some forms of AI content, but really only a very limited form of content that's made using um, certain software belonging to, to major companies. But Jake, look, you and I have spoken a lot about this uh, in the past few months, past few years. Is that really what, what we're going into here between these robocalls that are apparently coming out of strip malls in Texas and going to New Hampshire uh, to very, um, uh, very misleading, I guess, types of content, video, audio that's being produced easily and shared online. It seems like many of the companies just do not know how to get their hands around this from the social media companies to the producers of this. I think you're being nice. I think they don't care because they're making a lot of money. And so they're, they're, they're just like, ah, that's, that's somebody else's uh, problem. But uh, then again, I don't have to get my calls returned by them. Tony O'Sullivan, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Be sure to catch Tony on CNN's AC360 this evening, where he will uncover even more on AI and politics. Tony O'Sullivan for us in Fort Worth, Texas, with a disturbing report. In Florida right now, conservative Republicans are making a strong effort to keep a specific issue off the ballot in November. That's abortion rights. What are they doing? Will it work? We're going to go live to Florida next. And we're back with our health lead today. The Florida Supreme Court heard arguments on an amendment to the Florida Constitution that would guarantee the right to an abortion. The state's conservative attorney general is fighting to block that amendment from getting to appear on the ballot in November for the voters of Florida to decide. CNN's Carlos Suarez is live for us in Miami. Carlos, walk us through what happened in court today. Well, uh, Jake, the conservative-leaning court seemed reluctant to block the proposed amendment. Some of the justices, they really pushed back on the state's argument that the ballot language is misleading, and they took issue with the state saying that voters will not understand the sweeping impact that the amendment will have on the legislative process. Now, the wording of the proposed amendment reads, quote, no law shall prohibit, penalize, delay, or restrict abortion before viability or when necessary to protect the patient's health as determined by the patient's health care provider. This amendment does not change the legislature's constitutional authority to require notification to a parent or guardian before a minor has an abortion. Now, the state told the court that the terms viability and health care provider are not clear and overly broad. If 60% of voters approve it, the ballot amendment would roll back the state's current ban on abortion after 15 weeks to around 24 weeks. It would also block a six-week ban that the Florida legislature passed last year that has yet to take effect. 
Here now is some of the back and forth between the Attorney General's office and the Chief Justice on whether the ballot language here is complicated. The, the voters need to know the effects of what's going on here. It's pretty obvious that this is, uh, you know, a pretty uh, aggressive, comprehensive approach to dealing with, with this issue. And, and if it were to, you know, the voters can kind of argue about whether, you know, they want something more nuanced than that. I mean, it, it just doesn't seem like this is really trying to be deceptive. The people of Florida aren't stupid. I mean, they can figure this out. Floridians protecting freedom gathered just under a million signatures of registered voters to get the issue on the November ballot. The attorney representing the group told the court the language here is pretty clear. Voters have seen and, and, and deserve the chance to vote on and include in their constitution uh, what happens when these decisions are taken away from health care providers and put in the hands of politicians. And so, Jake, the court must decide the issue by April 1st. All right. Carlos Suarez in Miami with us. Uh, thank you so much. Coming up, uh, a special appearance you'll see at Sunday's Super Bowl. No, no, I'm not talking about Usher. And no, I'm not talking about Taylor Swift. Stay with us. In our sports lead, the Super Bowl just got even more exciting, especially for Lahaina Luna, Lahaina Luna High School. Lahaina Luna High School survived the devastating fires in Maui last August, and now players and coaches from the school's football team are going to get to serve as honorary coin toss captains at the big game this Sunday. The NFL announcement says in part, quote, the Lahaina Luna High School football team embodies the power of football to bring people together even in the most challenging of circumstances. Many on the team, of course, lost their homes, not to mention their football equipment, to the wildfires. Now the NFL is stepping in to replace all of that equipment. Uh, this reminder, tomorrow morning, listen in live to arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court and Donald Trump's ballot battle. I'm going to lead CNN special coverage. CNN's Caitlin Collins will be at the court tomorrow morning at 9 Eastern here on CNN. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, X, formerly known as Twitter, and on the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can follow the show on X at The Lead CNN if you ever miss an episode of The Lead. You can listen to the show once you get your podcasts all two hours, just sitting there like a, a big bowl of Doritos. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I will see you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.